0: Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Trish Curlay. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Carolyn Jones. Jones is a photographer and documentary filmmaker who recently spoke at the Buzz Chumley Theater in Bloomington for Indiana University's New Media School about her latest project. The American Nurse includes a book, a film and over one hundred interviews. The film profiles five of these helping professionals working in very different circumstances and addresses the national issue of health care through their and their patients' personal stories. Carolyn Jones describes her work as socially proactive in that she creates projects that point our attention towards issues of global concern women and girls, people with AIDS, and technology. In 2003, she co-founded the 100 People Foundation, through which she has traveled the globe collecting stories to create a world portrait of 100 people that statistically represent the global population. The foundation's mission is to produce media and educational tools that help students better understand the issues facing our planet and the resources we share. Carolyn Jones, thank you for being here today. Thank you. I mentioned in the introduction your description of your work is socially proactive. I've, I've heard of socially active, but what is socially proactive and what does that mean to you? You know, I guess it really means that I'm hoping that people see what
1: I do and very often are able to use my work as a tool to help make social change. What comes to mind right now is The American Nurse as a film. You know, I had my ideas of what I wanted it to do, but the nurses are using it as a tool in, in in a few different instances to try to shine a light on their own profession, to get uh, nurse practitioners the opportunity to to be able to do more of what they're able to do and to, to function to the full extent of their education. So I guess that's what I mean by socially proactive. It's a, It's a tool to use to make social change.
0: When you were growing up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, did you want to be a photographer?
1: Well, I growing up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania was kind of like uh, growing up on a, on another planet. It's, it's very white. It's very Presbyterian. It's very homogenous. I mean, my world there was. And I never really felt as though I fit in. And photography was my passport. So when I was 13 years old, my father let me trade in my violin, which I was kind of crummy at. And uh, the orchestra had just been so desperate for violin players that they took me but stuck me in the back somewhere. So I was really eager to unload that thing and trade it in for a camera. And the camera gave me all of a sudden a chance to talk to anybody, go anywhere, have a reason for being, and ask all the questions that went through my head and I never had a chance to ask. So it – It helped me find my way. It helped me define myself.
0: What did your parents let you do when you were 13 years old with a camera? How far out of Lancaster did they let you go? Well, the
1: interesting thing about that is that not very far, first of all. And being a photographer in, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, is kind of an oxymoron in a way because we're surrounded by Amish people. And Amish people don't like to have their photograph taken because they believe it steals their soul. So here I am, brand new budding photographer, the most picturesque thing, in the world are Amish people. I've always been interested in portraiture from the get-go, and I couldn't photograph them. So the best thing that my parents did when I was 13 years old was take me to New York City and show me the city. And that was my future.
0: So what did you envision when you were 13? What did you envision your work, your photography work would focus on?
1: You know, I worked with on the school newspaper and and I don't think I had a vision at that Early age, I wanted to just capture stories and, and I realized very quickly that being the person in the room asking the question with a camera gave you just an interesting in to seeing how other people live. So all of a sudden, all the, I, wasn't, I was never in the right click in high school. So all of a sudden, having that camera and asking questions, it took me to places I wouldn't have otherwise been. And that's what, that was kind of the light bulb that went off for me. And I realized that I could have a lifetime going to the places that I didn't have any other way in.
0: You use the word stories. So you knew at that that point, maybe you didn't have a vision for your work, but you knew that through photography you did want to tell stories.
1: Always, yeah. That is true. It was never just about the one image, the one photograph that would capture something. I've always been interested in the combination of the still photograph and words. So I always was about storytelling. I believe in storytelling. I've learned Everything I know about life that way and and I my father, who's a uh, kind of wonderful Virginian who is a great storyteller, could like sit back in his chair, roll up his sleeves a little bit, and launch into some story, and I would just be riveted so you know that's that's how I was educated.
0: You graduated from Syracuse University in New York in the late seventies and you worked as an assistant and apprentice photographer in the early years of your professional life who are? Hiro and Neil Slavin.
1: So there I am at Syracuse University. Honestly, from the moment I was 13 and my parents brought me to New York City, I was on a fast track to get to New York. I was kind of looking at my watch, wondering when high school would be over and then when college would be over. And somewhere along the line, I had fallen in love with the work of Hiro. He's a Japanese photographer. He was under contract with Harper's Bazaar magazine. And I don't know. It's, it's hard to... It's hard to say what grabs you about a certain photographer, but I understood what he was trying to say no matter what he was photographing, and I think that's what appealed to me. He could be doing fashion photographs or portraits or a still life of a gun or a piece of jewelry, and I always could pick out his photos, And, and that struck me because he had such a point of view. It wasn't my point of view, but I loved that he had one, and it was so evident to me.
0: So you knew his photography before you even worked with him. You, you oh, could yeah. identify his work.
1: Yes, absolutely. Going through college, I, I, and, and I've always had some kind of fascination for all things Japanese. I, I don't know what that is, the, the order of it, the beautiful graphics, the thinking. I, it's, just, it's, it's always appealed to me. So when I graduated from Syracuse, I was on like the first train out of there to New York City. And in my mind, as innocent as it may have been, I thought, I'm going to find Hero and go work for him. And I was just bound and determined to do that. So, you know, I just assumed I was going to get stuck being an intern no matter what. And I couldn't imagine that he wouldn't hire me. Why wouldn't you hire me? I'm willing to work for free. And so I went to his studio. It was 65th in Central Park West. and kind of hung out a little bit, um, hoping to get an appointment. Finally, through one channel or another, I finally got an appointment. And he shared with me right away that he had never had a woman working in the studio. I don't think he was particularly interested in having a woman working in the studio and didn't quite know what to do with me anyway. So stuck me in the dark room for a good year. I, I was in the dark room. Finally, one day, someone was sick, and uh, an assistant wasn 't available, so he pulled me out, let me on the set. happened to be the day that he was photographing Mick Jagger and Jerry Hall. I thought I was going to have a heart attack, but it was wonderful, and that kind of started my education with watching him work and then assisting him as we as he traveled around the world. So, I stayed with hero I worked for him, including the year that I was an apprentice. Um, I guess about four years. And then when it was time for me to leave and go off on my own, I had this kind of interim period where I had uh, a mutual friend of Neil Slavin's. and, And Neil... Neil kind of represented a different end of the business for me. I wanted to see two different spectrums. And Neil's very creative, um, not that Hero's not, but kind of a Soho artist. One was on the Upper West Side in this very slick, very beautiful studio, you know, and he photographed – people like Mick Jagger and Jerry Hall and and Neil was very much an artist. He shot large groups of people. He did a book called When Two Are, Mar- Are Gathered Together. It was a, a wonderful book that I loved and, uh, and so I assisted and worked with Neil but more on a more of a producer role not just assistant. So we would travel around the country and shoot and I would help produce the shoots as well.
0: What did you learn about photography from from both of them? From Hero... I guess
1: the most valuable thing I learned, and I learned it even before I met him, was to find my own words, to figure out how I feel about the world and how I'm going to interpret it, and to make sure that I didn't make choices in business. And he never verbalized this, but I watched him do this. Hero loved – and still loves what he does and and makes choices not he, he, he wasn't split up in his head like I'm going to do this job that's going to bring in an enormous amount of money so I can do this other thing that I love. He loves everything that he does. And I I grew to admire that enormously because I'm in a business where very often you find people, there's always somebody shooting, you know, one more catalog or one more ad or one more thing I don't really want to do so I can get to do the thing that I do want to do, which I think for me would have been kind of the kiss of death because it's a hard balance to make. And I think at the end, you kind of don't like your Profession as much very often that can happen at least that would have happened for me so so from hero oh, I learned to be true to myself and have a vision and follow it
0: at that at that time were you involved at all in interviewing subjects that you were phot- photographing.
1: I wasn't really. Uh, Until I went out on my own, I pretty much spent all day, every day working for either Hero or Neil Slavin until I got started. But it's an interesting question because I was starting to formulate who I was and what I was thinking about. So, and this was kind of interesting. Hero, if he was going to shoot a portrait, He would do an enormous amount of research on the person that he was going to photograph, and he had a vision of who they were before they walked in that door. He knew what he was going to do. He knew what the lighting was going to be like, and he would talk to them a little bit, but mostly he would get them on the set and work with them. Then there were other photographers who, and and Irving Penn was a photographer like this, that he would sit and talk to the subject a lot, and then all of a sudden just say, we're ready. You know, there would be a moment where he would have enough information. And I decided I fit into that second group, that I really needed to find out who the person was and get some kind of connection going with my subjects before I sat down to take the picture. So I very quickly realized that those conversations were really valuable, and I wanted to capture those, too.
0: Smack in the middle of the chronology of your work on your website is an entry from 1986, it says you were a co-driver in the Paris-Dakar rally. Every other entry in the chronology of your professional life on your website except this one and the date you were born has to do with your work. I'm assuming this was an important experience for you. So what was it and why is it on your website?
1: It was a critical experience for me. So while I was working for Hero one year, we were in Paris during the collections, and I was at the Place de Concorde and, on New Year's Eve. And on New Year's Eve, all of these crazy drivers, motorcycle riders, drivers, race car drivers, and, and guys driving 18-wheelers were circling. That Place de Concorde to go on the Paris-Dakar rally, an 8,000-mile rally across the Sahara. The magic I saw that night as a young woman in Paris got, like, indelibly imprinted in my head. I've always wanted to go fast and push myself and I wanted to know what I was capable of and the thing that appealed to me about the rally was that you had very professional race car drivers right next to people who didn't know squat about driving but because it was a it was a survival test you didn't just think about navigation, you had to think about what were you putting in the car to take with you over 8,000 miles of the desert? Are you going to take extra shock absorbers? How many? Are you going to take extra tires? How big do you make your gas tank? Because it weighs more, then you use more fuel. There was so much that went into participating in that rally. So it got tucked into the back of my head. And as I opened up my studio in New York City, I put this sign above my desk, I don't know when I did this. I, after I'd been in business for about two or three years and I was starting off in the fashion business, it didn't feel right. just didn't feel right for me. So I had a sign above my desk that said, If you know anybody that wants to do the Paris-Dakar rally, tell me. I was just there like that for years. So so one day somebody walked in and said, oh, my gosh, I know somebody who wants to do the Paris-Dakar rally. And it was this gentleman named Ed McCabe who was at a completely different stage of his life. He had been in the advertising business, used to be a race car driver, and really wanted to do that race. It's just – It's a magical thing. So I needed to get out of the fashion business. I knew it wasn't right, and we decided to train for a year to do the race. But it, it was related in a way. Nikon was one of our sponsors. I mounted five titanium cameras onto the car so I could see where we were going, where we had been, and everything going on in the car. They didn't all make it through the race, but a couple of them did. Um, and Esquire magazine decided to publish the travel, so it was it, it was a life changer.
0: In the early nineties, you photographed people living with HIV and AIDS, which was made into a book, Living Proof: Courage in the Face of AIDS. Uh, and then it was a, a, a documentary film was made by Kermit Cole. Um, this was at the height of the AIDS crisis in the United States, at a time before protease inhibitors. Uh, which ultimately dramatically slowed the rate of, of people dying from AIDS. Tell us a, a bit about this project, how, how it came about, how it evolved.
1: I had a very good friend named B.W. Honeycutt. B.W. and I had worked together for years. He was one of the founders of Spy Magazine, and we had done some hilariously funny satire and funny photographs for the covers of Spy Magazine over the years. And then he also was in the fashion industry, so we had worked together for a long time and just become really fast friends. And one night we went out for dinner and he told me that he had AIDS. And as you say, this is before the AIDS cocktail was available. So that was a death sentence and and we both knew it. And I'm afraid I didn't know how to react to that. I, um, I cried and I regretted that. He didn't need that at that moment, but I reacted first, and I thought later I need to really get educated about this. I need to know what he's dealing with. I need to know, you know, what's going on more fully, and I really need to get into this world so that I can understand it. Nicholas Nixon had just come out with a wonderful book that was showing kind of the devastation of what AIDS does to the body. It was very, it was very dark, but very important piece of work that he did, and. I spoke to a number of people, and it kind of appealed to the optimist in me to try to find people that were living positively with AIDS. They knew they were going to die, but they were grabbing life for all that it was worth. And even though – there was a dark end coming. They they wanted to live life to its fullest right now. And I wanted to help capture those stories for people that were newly diagnosed and only saw all this negative imagery out there. So it it was going to do two things. It was going to speak to a segment of the population that I thought I could do something for, and it was going to educate me about my friend B.W. Did you know you were going to be involved in a film project? No idea. In fact, when we started, it was just going to be a collection of photographs, which it was. It was a a collection of 50 photographs that we showed. It it opened at the World Trade Center on the mezzanine, A, a, a huge show of four foot by four foot images of all of these different people from all walks of life that were living with AIDS. I was so proud of that. And then that night we realized that that couldn't be the end. That had to be the beginning. So we knew we had a book to make. So we made the book next. And we realized I didn't quite have enough photographs and stories for a full book. So I started working again. And when I started working again, Kermit Cole came to me and said, can, can I capture this next leg of what you're doing? And so he, he did a wonderful film. And, and he, it's kind of, we were the launching pad, I think. He, um, used the, the photo shoots as a background to meet some of the people that I had found for the book, and then he followed them into their lives to tell their stories
0: more fully. Do you know if anyone in the book who had HIV and AIDS at the time is actually still alive?
1: There are a few people, not many, but there are a few people, and uh, I'm, I'm happy to say, and they... Uh, Mostly in in New York City that I'm aware of. Some people we were not able to keep track of. It's been a number of years and certain people have kind of fallen by the wayside and we haven't been able to find them. But very often uh, I'll get notified when someone passes away because – The photographs – in the photographs, I asked everybody to be photographed with someone or something that they love. And so they brought these wonderful things that had so much meaning for them to the photographs. Very often, they were family members or just friends or their loved ones or whoever. So often when someone in the book dies, family members come back to me and ask me for those photographs so that they can have them in the memorial because I wanted everybody to look great in the picture. And, uh, and sometimes it was the last time that they felt really good about the way they looked. So they wanted those images to live on.
0: You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Trish Curlay. Our guest today is Carolyn Jones, a photographer, interviewer, and filmmaker whose socially conscious work has of late focused on the American Nurse Project. The feature-length documentary film of the same name focuses on the professional and personal lives of five nurses who work in very different settings and communities across the United States. Let's play a clip from your film, The American Nurse. This is Naomi Cross, who works in Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore as a labor and delivery nurse. Um, Let's listen and and then talk about the clip. Great.
2: I myself have had a loss. I had a miscarriage in my bed. I was by myself. Um, It was so difficult and so hard. And I've had to deal with the guilt it comes with. I was so shocked, I think, at delivering in my bed, not realizing um, what was happening at the time until it happened that I just took my little baby, I wrapped him in a sheet, and I threw him away in the trash. And I think it's been so long for me to try to figure out how to forgive myself for that. I think now, when I became a nurse that was kind of put in the back of my, I think it was always there, but I didn't know, like consciously that I was becoming that I was uh, pulled into bereavement, perinatal bereavement, nursing for that reason. I actually went to a conference and discovered that I had all these feelings that had been buried so deep, especially the guilt. The guilt that maybe that never had a proper burial. But at that conference, I was surrounded by other women and providers who were so compassionate and they told me to name that baby and I named him right then and there and I named him Gabriel. And I think about him sometimes and it just burned this fire in me to never ever want any other mother to be alone
0: through this. Interviewing can be, obviously, a very intimate and sometimes surprising experience. I can see that you're still moved by the conversation that you had with Naomi Cross.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've heard that 500 times, and it gets me every time, Uh, for a lot of reasons. How generous of her to share that story, first of all, and how profound it is, it's you know, it's always hard when you we've we've pulled something out of the film with, and we don't have the context of of, of meeting Naomi before we hear this in this particular setting. So, I feel like I had I'd, I'd like to just spend a moment telling you who Naomi is. She's a labor and delivery nurse at Johns Hopkins, and before she shared that story with me, I watched her bring a child into the world. And she was working with a woman, and which she does every day and is, is isn't, you know, surprising for her, but of course was mind-blowing for myself and my crew. And I've had children, but you don't see it when you're doing it, but it's another thing to be there. But Naomi had opened up her family and her home and her life and her work and introduced me to a patient who had ovarian cancer. It was a miracle this woman even was pregnant, let alone had carried full term with one ovary, and she was about ready to have a C-section. And Naomi took us into her world as she stood there while the, the mom got an epidural, and she got her through all of that and then stayed there with her throughout the entire birth, we have all of this in the film and then Naomi takes that child and ultimately gives the child the first bath and I watch and then there's a hug there's a hug that the mom gives Naomi that just would blow your mind, I mean It's such an important role to play to bring these children into the world and to make sure that the start of that first start of life is is right and that the mom can bond with the baby. It's such important work, and she's so gifted at it. And I had spent some time with Naomi at this point before I heard this story, and I knew a story was coming. You know, there was something that she was challenged with, she hadn't told this story before, not publicly. There were members of her family who had never heard this story. And I watched her kind of struggling with how transparent she could really be. And this is one of the extraordinary thing about the nurses – they demand, you know, as patients, we, we're very transparent. When we hurt, when we're in pain, we just kind of have it all out, hanging out there on the table, right? It's very hard to have a veneer when you're in pain and sick. And I think that nurses develop a quality that puts them in the same – at the same place. They don't – I've interviewed people all my life and very often I'm out there chiseling a wall down to get to what the meat of who the person really is, right? But nurses kind of sit down and give it to you right away. And Naomi wasn't any different. She was right there and this unbelievably profound story that was so personal for her came out when we were – working together and I was just utterly speechless a that she shared it and the way that she shared it was so beautiful and then I think to have this uncanny ability which I met a lot of nurses who have this to dig into your soul and use something personal intensely personal in your own life to drive your work forward so because of that experience, she, she does perinatal bereavement. She doesn't want any mother to ever go through what she went through. And that's so real for her because she remembers it like it was yesterday. And I just thought we should bronze her for heaven's sake. That's just so beautiful that she was able to take this very difficult thing that happened in her life and, and really have it inform her moving forward to help others.
0: So after that moment – she finishes the story, the camera goes off. Did she have any reaction to
1: We her? cried. We both cried. We hugged and we cried and, and I said, then let's just think about it. We we you know, I the the, the one thing I always do is I don't ever want to put something out there that somebody's not comfortable with. And so I always was making sure that the nurses that were in the project were comfortable with the footage that I was using. And I knew we were going to have to revisit that one. So after I just said, let's not think about it now. You know, let's just put it away. We'll keep working on the piece. Let me let me see what we do with it and you're going to see everything before we before we finish this this film. So we'll see how we do.
0: And it was a it
1: was a journey for her. It was a real journey.
0: Your website includes interviews with 116 nurses who you interviewed over a 2-year period. What was your process for distilling those interviews down to the 5 you chose for the film? That's a great
1: question and it's a, it's almost impossible to answer in a way, but I let me say this. There were certain issues I was really interested in that rose to the surface as I worked on the American nurse. One was the returning war veterans. What's going on with our veterans that are deployed numerous times, coming back with post-traumatic stress, coming back missing limbs because of the technology that we have that keeps them alive longer? So many new challenges, and I wanted to find out about that. I wanted to look at poverty in this country. I think that Um, And maybe it's – I don't know if everybody's this way, but I know that in America in particular, we don't really like to see poverty too close to home. We can talk about it in other parts of the world. We're kind of okay with that. But we don't like it when it's in our own backyard. And we have a lot of poverty in this country. So I wanted to go to one of the poorest parts of the country, the Appalachian Mountains, and see what caring for others and health care looks like in that setting. So now we had returning war veterans, and we had the the poor of our country. And then I wanted to look at the forgotten. So I spent time at the Louisiana State Penitentiary. We don't think about the people serving time and what their health care is looking like. But it was something else. After spending two years interviewing nurses, I was really struck by a quality that they all have. And that quality is the ability to care for others without judgment. It's a beautiful thing. I've never seen anything like this. They are actually – I actually didn't believe it at first. I would, I would always say, OK, so you're in the emergency room and two people come in and this guy shot this child and you're assigned to the guy who was the shooter. How do you do that? How do you go try to save his life when this child is over there? I must have asked 90 nurses the same question and they were always like, it doesn't matter. That's someone's child too. We care for others. It's not my place to make a judgment. And I'd always be like, yeah, 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 but really what do you feel? And that's really what they feel. That's really the training and the DNA that they have is to say it's not – my place to judge what this person has done. It's my place to care for them. So that's why I went, I went to Angola to really explore that. Angola, the prison. Angola, the prison. Yeah, the Louisiana State Penitentiary. And then I wanted to capture the beginning of life, which was Naomi Cross at, at Johns Hopkins, and the end of life, which is Sister Stephen, a nun in Wisconsin at a nursing home where she ushers people out of this world.
0: You have been open about the fact that you're a breast cancer survivor, and you say you were inspired to make the film The American Nurse because of your relationship with one nurse in particular, the nurse who dispensed her chemotherapy. So tell us about Joanne and why she was so figural. So—
1: Breast cancer is a drag. You know, you go through all these different steps. And I had surgery. I kind of got through that because you can fake people out and not everybody has to know that you have breast cancer. It's not so visual. And then I went through radiation and that makes you tired, but I wasn't wearing it yet. But I had chemotherapy coming my way. And, and I knew I was going to lose every hair on my body because of the kind of chemotherapy I was going to get. And I was scared. I was—I kind of really kept it together until that moment, kept working, kept being who I was. Walking, My daughter was 10 years old at the time, kept walking her to school every day. And then the first day of chemotherapy came and I had this port sticking out of my chest. And I'm sitting in this chemo room and this woman wheels this stuff in with a mask on her face. And I'm thinking, you're going to stick that where – And it was Joanne Staha standing there with this needle in her hand. And she was funny. And I wasn't feeling very funny at the time, I have to say. And at first I was kind of like, well, that's just kind of irreverent. And then she, she started talking. And within, I don't know, half an hour, so she said, I love your hair color. Where do you get your streaks done? Where do you get your highlights done? And I actually said, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? We're going to talk about my hair color when I'm about ready to lose every hair on my body? And she said, Yeah, why not? It's going to grow back. Why not? It's going to grow back. That was the first moment for some reason that I felt normal in months. This woman was looking at me and she wasn't afraid to talk to me about it. She wasn't afraid to say, You're going to be highlighting your hair again. And Everything shifted. It was such an important turning point for me. And we had a great time together. I always had my chemo with Joanne, and she was dating boys in Manhattan. And we would talk – and she saw me through the whole thing. I would come in. Finally, I shaved my head because I just got tired of the clumps falling out. And so we had a giggle about that. And she was just funny. And I don't know how she knew how to use humor the way she did, but it was a gift. And I was struck by it. So many years went by. You know, you, you go through something like that and you don't exactly at the end of the day or when you're finished with your chemo think, hmm, I'm going to call Joanne up and see if she wants to go have a drink tonight and kick around old times. That's history. You want to move on from it. I didn't really want to see Joanne again. So I'm not sure I ever thanked her properly. I know I didn't thank her properly. And I often thought about that over the years. How many nurses don't know how much they've done for us? So when I was asked to do something, a project that would celebrate nurses by a company called Fresenius Kabi, I absolutely leapt at the opportunity to dive back into that world.
0: Interesting to me, though, that you showed that you didn't include Joanne in the film. Joanne
1: actually did meet a guy and did fall in love and have a child. And she wasn't... Working, you know, as deep in the world as, as I wanted to get. And, and, you know, I had five very specific things that I wanted to capture. But I would have loved to have just – I would do anything to work with Joanne again. So it wasn't, you know, for any reason other than it didn't fit into the topics so much that I wanted to cover.
0: I want to um, pivot to another nurse in the film. And you referenced him vaguely before when you talked about Appalachia, Jason Short. Um, Tell us a bit about Jason's background and the population with whom he works, and then we're going to play a clip. Great. Boy,
1: Jason was – when I first met Jason and I went out to meet him and his family, I came back to New York and said, I should just do this whole film about Jason. His his life is so rich, and there was – you know, there's something about the people that are living in that region of the country that they – there's a – you know, Jason often used the word clans. There were clans. There were – but there was this this sense of togetherness and family and, 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 and they were connected in a certain way. Um, these were people that were very often entrenched in their homes. Most of the people I met that he deals with were – dealing with some level of black lung disease from working in the coal mines. Very often the roads to their homes were flooded by top of the mountain mining. I was, you know, it's where I probably learned some of the biggest lessons. You you start a project like this and you think you know how you feel about things. I thought I knew how I felt about coal mines, for example. I didn't think there was anything good about it. Until I went out there and met people that were working in the coal mines and said, Hey, while you're making this film, whatever you do, make sure you don't say anything bad about the coal mines. This is our livelihood. This is how we feed our families. We love this work. Not everybody, but I heard this over and over and over. We get paid well to go and do this. This is what we've chosen to do. Please don't say anything bad. Well, Jason cares for these all of these people, and he has to make his way to their homes. Now, his background is as a garage mechanic. His father owned a garage in Pikesville. And we went to that garage, and he grew up working on cars. and. And kind of given stuff away on the sly, like if people came in and really needed something and they couldn't really afford new tires, he would kind of slip them new tires or something and hope that his father didn't notice. I mean, he just had like a huge heart. His dad was more of a businessman, but he was like this guy that always wanted to help. And it took him, uh, it was kind of an interesting path for him to get to nursing. and But eventually he does. Eventually he lands exactly where he was supposed to be and he starts caring for others. And the beautiful thing about his background is that since he can fix cars and he's living in a part of the world where he actually has to like forge creeks to get to people who are suffering, he can fix the car when he rips the front fender off going up a creek or do what, you know, whatever happens to his car along the way. But he opened my eyes to so much, Jason. Let's listen to the clip. Okay.
3: Fixing cars, there are a lot of similarities. Uh, even when I was sitting in anatomy class and, you know, we were studying the blood vessels or we were, you know, just studying gross anatomy, I was like, I could relate to it because of the things that I'd learned as an auto mechanic. It's interesting. You know, the radiator hose uh I kind of thought of as the circulatory system and the water pump was the heart, you know. when I first became a nurse, I got this call and they said, uh, your dad's down in the ER. He had uh, gallbladder cancer. By the time they figured out what it was, it was too late, nothing we could do. So we kind of went from hospital to hospital to hospital just basically in a panic, not knowing what to do, because everything was happening so fast. And, you know, the medical community, as soon as they seen his age, which was 70, which is actually young, but there's a doctor that says, well, he's 70 years old, you know, and let it go. He went from working to gone in two weeks. felt like he was kind of abandoned. By the traditional hospital setting, and through that whole process, it really really changed the way I, I view healthcare care. I kind of felt like you know, maybe I need to you know get into the homes and in the intimate setting.
0: You spent a lot of time with nurses over a two year period, and the, and the film focuses on how these nurses feel about their work, their patients, and how it impacts them personally. What the film doesn't focus on, and, and um, Jason Short references it a, a, a bit, is their perspectives on the current state of the health care system in the United States. Can you speak to that, what they, what they may have said to you that you didn't include in the film?
1: Well, it's a little bit dicey. Um, a lot of nurses didn't want to go public with what they really think about what's going on. Um, you know, people are thinking about their jobs. It's they're complicated topics. There were most of the nurses that I spoke to, other than everyone agreeing that it's all dysfunctional. We we, we do know that. Felt as though and, – and Jason is, is a great example of that, that, that there certainly isn't enough care given for all of the forgotten people of our country. So in his case, there, there isn't enough money to visit the people that need to have care that are living in those mountains. And, and out of his day in particular, an enormous amount of time is spent filling out forms – Redundant forms, forms that he's already filled out for somebody else somewhere else just to make sure that nobody's going to get sued for anything. There are also things that they're not able to do as nurses that they've been trained to do, that they should be able to do. Things like writing prescriptions and, 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 and caring for people to the fullest extent of their education. So I heard nurses talking a lot about that, uh, uh, talking a lot about how for healthcare care to be viable, they, they can't spend nearly as much time with each patient as they want to, and, and how they're spending so much more time kind of covering what they've done and talking about what they've done and writing down what they've done that they don't get enough time doing the work that they're really trained well to do, which is caring for the patient. So there's a lot of discontent with the way things are but I didn't get into long conversations with nurses about our current healthcare system other than the general complaints of too much paperwork and not enough time because that that wasn't the focus of the film not at all and you know, my whole approach towards all the work that I do is to just show the story, shine a light on the story. Now, I, I will say one of my favorite things that happens with the film is when someone takes it and uses it as a tool. And and there are things that are exposed in this film that are shown in the film about nurse practices that already nurses are taking the film and showing segments of it to different people to try to affect change. And that's the way I like my work for me to be used. But I'm not an expert. And it's not a, you know, the healthcare system is, is very complicated quagmire to step into, so I try not to.
0: You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Our guest today is Carolyn Jones, whose photography and filmmaking has taken her around the United States and around the globe, focusing on people living with HIV AIDS, performance artists, women, girls, and families, technology experts, women artisans, and most recently, American nurses. A decade ago she co-founded the 100 People Foundation. Your work seems to have taken a turn about 20 years ago when you directed Women on Family for Public Television and then as we talked about your book of photographs called Living Proof Courage in the Face of AIDS. It made me think about the intersection of art and activism. <laughs> You're certainly an artist, but do you consider yourself an activist?
1: I don't. I consider myself a storyteller. But not an activist.
0: What about an advocate?
1: An advocate for sure. Yes.
0: (laughs) Tell us about the the work of the 100 People Foundation.
1: This was born from an interesting place. I had finished doing a book called Every Girl Tells a Story where I traveled across America and met young women that have accomplished extraordinary things. And it was a wonderful project. I had my husband, who's French, and had an opportunity to live in Paris for a couple of years. And it just kind of came at an interesting time for me when I was interested in broadening my vision of the world. I had spent a lot of time working on American projects at this point, and I thought it would be interesting to get a different perspective. So we moved to Paris with our daughter. And unfortunately, right after that, 9-11 happened. So When we moved to Paris, I had enrolled myself into Alliance Francaise to try to learn the language, which was not very productive on a lot of levels. But I I certainly was interested in giving it a go. And I was in class with – there weren't any other Americans in this particular class. We represented a lot of different countries. And we would go into the classroom and sit in a circle. And and we had to introduce ourselves in French. And, you know, you kind of muddle along and you would get a little bit of instruction and then we would all try to talk. And I had had taken about a week of classes when 9-11 hit. So, I'm sitting in our apartment. I, I live in Manhattan. I live in Lower Manhattan. I have a loft there. Uh, all of our friends are in Manhattan. We, you know, we knew a lot of people living in the lower part, and and I wanted to be there so desperately. It was very hard to watch that on the news and not be able to be there and help in some way. So on September 12th, I woke up not kind of knowing what to do with myself, and. Decided to go to the class at Alliance Francaise because I just didn't know what else to do. I couldn't just sit there and keep watching CNN any longer. So I went to the class, but I was a little bit late. And everybody was already seated in in this big circle. I, I walked into the classroom and an Iranian woman stood up and walked over to me, like crossed the whole room, and gave me this really big hug and said, I'm so sorry for your loss. And I didn't know how she knew to do that, but it was the perfect thing. The whole classroom kind of embraced the moment, and we talked about what had happened. But I thought, I want whatever skill set she had to know to do that, I need to learn some of that. I need to know about that. So it put me in a certain mindset. I very shortly after that got over the internet like so many people did. If the world were 100 people statistics – and it's an interesting way of looking at the world. You, it breaks us down in terms of gender and nationality and religion and, you know, I think growing up – for all of us, you grow up and you think you're the center of the world and you can't imagine that if the world were 100 people, only five would be from North America. Well, that's kind of surprising if you're from North America, you know. It, it, there would be, you know, how many of us wouldn't have electricity? How many of us wouldn't have safe drinking water? It's a, it's a great snapshot of the world's population. And I looked at that and said, okay, I'm a photographer and a storyteller. I want to find the 100 people. I want to find 100 people that represent those global statistics. And I think I was just in a head frame because of – Having a daughter, wanting to have her understand the world that we live in, having that experience in my French class, getting the statistics sent to me. And I became—I started a foundation that would invite students from all around the world to send us stories and photographs of people they admire so that we could start a a database and start to find the 100 people that will statistically represent the world population.
0: And so this has been around for 10 years. It has. And give me an example of the kinds of project well, – what does the project do? What is the wh- – how do you go around doing the work of the project? So we we have
1: sponsorship, and we've had sponsorship from some wonderful companies that have gotten behind what we're doing. Washington Mutual Bank was behind us right there in the very beginning. Intel, Microsoft, um, SunPower, a, a solar energy company in California – um, we 've had great support the Merck Foundation now an energy company called PSEng and and what that 's done for us is when we 've built this website and and the website is meant to be kind of a portal of understanding way the, the way different people live so I very much believe that if you meet someone from a place if you talk to them about their religion or where how they how they live how they work that you 'll better understand that place so a lot of our work is directed mostly towards middle age middle school age children but that's not to say that high schools and colleges haven't used it cuz they have but we nominations will come in and then we'll go and find the people and we we have the student who introduced us to the person to begin with, take us by the hand into that community to find that person and meet them. And then we tell their story by short videos, you know, more photographs, more stories. And we put put this all on the web so that teachers that are teaching like social studies, for example, say they're going to start a new section on India or China or whatever, and they want to introduce their students to someone who lives there. Then they'll go to that part of our website and you can meet people from all over the world talking about how they live and who they are.
0: You've worked with numerous corporate sponsors and you just mentioned a few in fact uh, through the various projects you've been involved with for example uh for sending us which is a healthcare company for the American Nurses Project and Microsoft in 2007 for Heroes Happen Here which is a book of photos and inter- interviews with technology experts around the world. In your experience with a sponsor, how has it typically happened for you to work on a project? Do they approach you? Do do you approach them? How does that happen?
1: Okay, well, it's all it's all different. I mean, there isn't it's 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 happened a lot of different ways. I think that the American nurse experience is probably a good place to start. In that project, they. Were opening up an American branch of Fresenius Kabi, so there was going to be Fresenius. It's they're based in Germany, so they were going to open up Fresenius Kabi USA, and, and they did. They started the company here, and the marketing department there was looking for a way to do something that would shine a light on nurses. So that was that was the core of of what they wanted. So they went to a company called Ops Ideas that I work a lot with, and and there. You know, it's always kind of a little bit of corporate responsibility, a little bit of um, you know trying to make the world a, w- a better place. There, the, the, I did the Microsoft project with Ops Ideas. They're they're very much about trying to take corporate dollars and do something that you know highlights the work that that company is doing, but also tells stories that make people better understand the world. So. They came to me and said, would you be willing to do a project about nurses? Well, because of my experience with Joanne Staha, I initially jumped at the idea of doing something about nurses, but I wasn't interested in doing a marketing project. I didn't want actually to go down that path at all. So, you know, it it started over here with – them wanting to do one thing. And then I said, you know what I would love to do, though? I would love to do a book that celebrates nurses if I can have complete creative control, as long as there isn't any editorial guidance whatsoever. And if you're willing to sponsor that, and, you know, at this point, I've got a body of work that you can look at. You can see what kind of work I do. If I can go across the country without any direction from your side and discover who nurses are and what they're doing and what nursing really looks like in this country, then we can land. And I mean, that's like a gift from above, right? Who gets sponsorship like that? It's taken me my whole career to actually find someone who would let me do that in that way. But it was a beautiful thing. And, and that's exactly what happened. They didn't actually see the work until it was finished and didn't have any you know, editorial control or say about where I went or who I talked to. So that's not a common experience. No, that is (laughs) not common, actually. It's delightful and wonderful. And I think everybody benefited greatly from that. At the end of the day, you know, they could put a belly band around that book and give it to the people that they wanted to meet and say, this is – how this is our culture as a company, this is how we feel. And, and I think it was a, you know, kind of a wonderful gift to give to the community that actually uses their products. So it was a little bit indirect. But at the same time, we were able to do a project, you know, my motivation was very much to celebrate nurses and to come out with something that would move the public understanding of what nurses are capable of further along. And I think we were able to do that. So, but no, it isn't always that wonderful.
0: On the homepage of your website, you declare that you are quote forever passionate about personal stories and their power to connect us all close quote. So, how does it feel to be on the other side of the <laughs> desk? How does it feel to to be the one answering the questions instead of asking the questions?
1: I think I you know I don't love it. I'll be right up front about that. I'd much rather be asking the questions or taking the pictures, but. It's something I learned from the nurses. You know, if you're going to spend your life asking people to share their stories and to be transparent and to tell you their innermost thoughts when you've got a camera and a light and a microphone in their face, then I have to be able to do that, too. And I believe that. And I think that I should – I hope – that I've learned to be as transparent and as authentic and honest as the nurses that I've had the great privilege to meet have been.
0: Uh, the film The American Nurse opened in May. How can people see this film? Well, we're still in theater, so I am I'm
1: big on the theater experience. The, the, what nurses do is incredibly intimate. And there are moments in the film that are really up close and personal and it's wonderful to see it on a big screen. I'm such an advocate of that. I hope people will go – with their neighbors and nurses have told me that their husbands didn't even know what they did until they went to see this film or their neighbors or their children or whoever. But just to be sitting in that dark theater and and really understand the power of human touch and the power of what nurses are capable of. so. We are still in in theaters, but we're asked to come, you know, one day at a time very often. It's sponsored and brought in by either a school or a university or a hospital, and they often rent the local theater to show the film. So uh, this is all on our website. This The American Nurse Project basically has three legs. One is the film, one is the book, and one is the website. I love the website because all the information is there. The website is is wWw.American nurseproject.com. And I I think that if you click on film and screenings, you'll see dots all over the country of where the film is and where it's playing. Now, if you can't get to a theater, you can also download it from the website. You can order it, a DVD that will come in the mail that has some wonderful extras on it, by the way. There's some funny stuff at the end of it that happened that I couldn't squeeze into the film. So there there are definitely ways to get it. There are educational licenses. I have a great distributor who's really devoted to getting the film out there. So we don't make it hard
0: to see. And I have a sense that your next project is also kind of related to health care or, or well, health and well-being in America. Can you tell us about that?
1: Well, I can. I'm just getting started, looking for funding. So if anybody's interested, <laughs> speak up now. After four years of being with nurses and spending time with patients all across the country, one thing really rose to the surface. And that's that we don't know how to die very well. And I'm struck by that. We're, we're spending a lot of money on the end of life and not getting the outcomes that we're looking for. We don't like to talk about it. In fact, we don't talk about it. And it's not sustainable what we're doing. And I think that nurses can guide us better. So I've started the ball rolling for a project called Dying in America. And I think I'm hoping that I can shine a light on ways to do that that are maybe better, that open up some eyes to ways that we can have a little bit more control over end of life than we thought we could, and address some of the issues that we're just so darn uncomfortable talking about.
0: I've been speaking today with Carolyn Jones. Thank you so much for being here with us. This is Trish Curley for Profiles. Until next time, thanks for joining us.
2: The program you just heard was recorded in November of 2014. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.